Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. Across the holiday season, we've been enjoying some of the best bits from our interviews recorded over the past 12 months. This week, we're listening back to a few of our most treasured cultural events from across the whole of the Intelligence Squared archive. And we'll also be pulling back the curtain to hear how those events get to be made. Stick with us this week and you'll hear Jeremy Irons and Kerry Mulligan on some of the greatest speeches made in history, Helena Bonham Carter reading poetry from the heart, and Kwame Kwaiarma discussing the letters and the writers that have changed the world, from Marie Antoinette to Rosa Parks. But today we're going to be revisiting 2018, when pianist James Rhodes and satirist Armando Iannucci joined broadcaster Clemency Burton-Hill to discuss the transformative power of music. First, let's hear from Hannah Kay, executive producer at Intelligence Squared, about how that event came to be. James and Armando are two absolutely brilliant people. James is the most amazing music communicator, as well as a concert pianist. He plays, he explains, he talks about the composers, how much they were suffering. And because he himself has endured a lot of trauma. He pours his emotions into his conversation and into his playing. He's absolutely terrific. And then of course, everyone knows Amanda Yonucci from television shows like The Thick of It and Veep and the film Death of Stalin. But not many people know that Armando is also a huge lifelong fan of classical music. So when I heard that Armando had a book coming out called Hear Me Out about this passion, I thought it'd be brilliant to get them together. And that's what we did. The thing about Intelligence Squared is that no one knows exactly what they're going to see or hear. That's the beauty of it, the spontaneity. And it's the same for me, even though I've produced the event. And there was a moment that I can't forget when Armando was talking and James just wanted to butt in. And he held out his hand and he covered Armando's mouth so that he could butt in. I wish the photographer had got a shot of that, but it's there in my mind. I'll always remember that. Hannah Kay, Intelligence Squared's executive producer there. Now back to 2018. Clemency, Burton Hill, James Rhodes and Armando Iannucci on the transformative power of music. Thank you very much indeed, Hannah. Thank you all for being here. Wonderful to see Cadogan Hall filled with people for this uh, event tonight. I am absolutely delighted to be your host for this evening and to have these two wonderful speakers with us. Uh, James Rhodes, a concert pianist with, frankly, a cult following. I think you can call it that. That means small, isn't it? (laughs) No, that means ardent. (laughs) 
and so much more. His debut album, Razorblades, Little Pills and Big Pianos, went to number one on the iTunes chart, as have all six of his albums, and he'll be signing copies of his latest one. Uh, after the event today. Now, as well as performing around the world as a pianist, James is also a best-selling writer and a TV and radio presenter. His memoir, Instrumental, a memoir of madness, medication and music, was the subject of an aggressive high court injunction, which James had to take to the Supreme Court to win and publish. I'm delighted to say it's gone on to become an international bestseller. It's being adapted for the big screen. He's also the author of How to Play the Piano, which is part of a series called Little Ways to Live a Big Life. And his latest book, Fire on All Sides, wonderful read, I couldn't recommend it highly enough, Uh, Insanity, Insomnia and the Incredible Inconvenience of Life reached number one in Spain in its very first week of publication. And the accompanying album is also a number one on iTunes. Then we have Armando Iannucci, I'm sure he'll be very familiar to all of you, uh, one of Britain's most celebrated comedy writers and producers. He's the creator of things like Veep, The Day to Day, Alan Partridge, The Saturday Night Armistice, and of course, The Thick of It. Other producer credits include such classics as On the Hour and The Merry White House Experience. Now, we're very lucky to have both of our speakers here tonight, but particularly Armando, who's hot off the plane. He's been in the US and most recently Gothenburg, mm-hmm. and he's back on the plane tomorrow to Rotterdam, promoting his satirical film, The Death of Stalin, which stars Simon Russell Beale, Michael Palin, and Steve Buscemi. It's a film so good that it's been banned in Russia, and I think that tells you all you need to know. Yeah. He, uh, as well, is nothing if not a polymath. In 2016, he released his first book, The Audacity of Hype, which explored sleaze, bewilderment, and other 21st century tales, not the accents of the denizens of Sloan Square. Uh, His latest book, Hear Me Out, is a joyful account of his adventures in listening to classical music over the course of many years. Uh, Armando, I should say, is also the proud recipient of Grade 1 Piano. So a warm (laughs) welcome to you both. (laughs) I want to start with something that you both allude to in your book, which is this idea that a love of classical music is something that needs to be really fervently apologised for, something almost to be ashamed of. I mean, James, uh, you have been such a champion of classical music, but you do say that every time you mention how much you love it, you feel an apology coming on. The entirely undeserved reputation it has got makes saying you listen to it and enjoy it almost like a confession. And Armando, you too talk about this act of defiance against the keepers of the cool. And you say, I keep meeting people so battered by the collective imperative only to admit liking what the whole world is telling you to like, that they sneak out to classical lunchtime concerts with all the guilt of a Victorian clergyman desperately hunting a crack den. Yes. (laughs) That's the Wigmore Hall, the crack den, that I occasionally visit in disguise on a Monday lunchtime. Yes. Well, why do we need to be in disguise about it? Why the apology? Uh, Well, I mean, for me, it's it's a sense of... um, I mean, there's a ritual about it, isn't there? Going to a classical concert um, that you break down, but, but, you know, conventionally there's so much that if you're new to classical music, I I think people feel um, excluded by it, It, as if people are saying, well, unless you've got the score and brought it along, this isn't for the likes of you. You know, there's that sense of... And then you come in and nobody speaks. You know, everyone sits down and someone comes on 
and doesn't say anything, but sits down, and then if it's an orchestra, more people come on, and then the conductor comes on and doesn't say anything, and we start. And, and I think that puts a lot of people off. That's what I feel. James, you've done more than anyone I can think of to break down those barriers and to get the message out that classical music can actually be something that can not only save lives, but enrich lives and enhance lives, any life, irrespective of who you are, what your background is, what your education is. Yeah, I just don't, I don't like the, the word classical. I mean, music is music. The minute you put the word classical in front of it, at some point, and I, I can't pinpoint exactly when, classical music was appropriated by a certain kind of person who wants to see it as a kind of elevated art form. Um, and there are two ends. There's the very sacred, you know, God forbid you don't wear a tie and you make a noise and you need to know what a cadenza is and the sonata form in Beethoven's Vienna and when to applaud. There's that side, which is very, very stuffy. Um, and then there's the really apologist side, which is these kind of assholes on Classic FM who will play, you know, waltzing Matilda on the guitar and say, this is classical music or this is the famous bit off the Hovis ad, because actually you're a little bit too dumb to handle a 25-minute yeah. symphony. You know, so we're sorry, this is classical. And there are all these rules, like Armando says. It's like before you even get through the door, if you don't know anything about classical music and you think, all right, where to start? Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. Everyone knows that. You go to Spotify, you go to iTunes. There are 400 fucking recordings yeah. of it. Well, and it- you're, you're right about the children thing, because... Children are actually, uh, they don't want to be talked down to and they don't want simplified, hey, this, this represents an elephant or this music is like a circus, isn't it? They, they, they're in, I mean, they're into gaming, which is about the most sophisticated way, narrative form there is with all many levels and you're under control. You know, they, they like things that are complex. And I remember once in the car, a bit of ligety came on the radio, and it was like you know, it's it's very you know modern, it's dissonant, it's but it's it's uh, it's amazingly entertaining. And to my son, who was about five or six, I was trying to simplify, and I said, uh, "This sounds a bit like uh, sort of bees buzzing, doesn't it?" And he went, "No, it it sounds like a lot of penguins fighting for a fish, and one of them's caught it." Wow, and. Obviously. He was absolutely right. See a that, glittering that future right. ahead as a programme <laughs> note writer. Like. But you raise such an important point because before children know that they're not supposed to like this, yes. or before they're told that they, you know, it's only for posh people or whatever it might be that gets drummed into them, their response to the music, like most human beings' response to the actual music, is immediate and mm. valid and joyful. And, or, and the big... The big much bigger point to all of this is this begins and ends with music education, mm. yes. which here with this audience, I'm sure, is not really an issue. Um, but nationwide, and the government, successive governments, not just here, but all around the world, from Argentina to Germany, Christ, Germany, it's in crisis. It's hurtling off the edge of a cliff. And the government here were very, very clear in 2012. In black and white, they said, every child every child from every part of the country, no matter what their background, will have the opportunity to learn a musical instrument. A complete lie. It was just a complete lie. Fake news. Uh, fake, much worse than fake news. You know how they get around it. <laughs> I've seen this with my own eyes. Occasionally, there'll be a classroom of 30 kids, and for 20 minutes once a week, they'll throw in three ukuleles. I'm not even joking. And they'll share the ukuleles, you know, one to every five children. They'll strum it for a few minutes, and then they tick the box and say, that was our music lesson. 
I want to talk more about the importance of this, but this really matters, doesn't it? I mean, James, you've been extraordinarily frank and candid and brave about talking about how music has actually saved your life. And actually, you you cite a, a, a developmental psychologist in your book, David Hargreaves, who argues that there's something innate in music. It's very easy. I mean, Leonard Bernstein talked about universal grammar. It's an easy thing to throw around this idea of music as the universal language. And I find myself endlessly saying that. People roll their eyes at me. But actually, what you both argue so powerfully for is that there is this sort of innate power that music has over human beings. As you quote it, Armando, a deep structure that triggers activity in the brains of anyone who hears it, whether they're from Cheshire or Chad. You're from North London and Glasgow, respectively. (laughs) How did you first encounter classical music, and was it an instant love affair? It's bigger than music. That's the point Mm. about children and and music. Whatever, whether it's classical or, or, or whoever, it doesn't make any difference. You see how they innately respond to music. And study after study has shown that it has a dramatic effect on well-being, on discipline, on focus, on literacy, on numeracy, on so much more than just learning an instrument. Um, In my case, I found an old cassette, because I'm really old, with a piece of Bach on it, and and it changed everything for me, Uh, because it it goes underneath words, and like Armando was saying, it, it tells a story that oftentimes we, still as adults, we don't have words for, but there's a feeling that's anchored underneath it, and and that's why it's so important. You discovered music through your local library, which it was is my another local li- yes. vexing conversation about the end of libraries oh, and God, how important yes. they I are. I know, I know that was... But it was um, the LP, it wasn't even a cassette tape, it was the LP. The LP collection, yes. I mean, I, I grew up in a, a kind of small tenement flat. I had two brothers and a younger sister, was, and, and I shared a room with my brother, and he was into, you know, Deep Purple and Pink Floyd and all the colours, King Crimson and, and, and <laughs> you know, which is fine, but I never quite... I, it, it never quite jolted me. You know, it, it, it sort of... And I wondered, why am I not reacting to this the way everyone's meant to react? Uh, and uh, it, it was at a school... It was just a, a music appreciation class at school that happened so seldom. And, and I looked forward to them every time I knew one was looming. And I remember the first one I went to, and the teacher just put a needle down on a vinyl recording of them, um, just hosts the planets. I mean, it was a very basic, well-known... But I was like thinking, that's my noise, that's it. I haven't heard this before, and I want to hear more of it. It was, the, it was actually the orchestra, the sound of an orchestra playing, and the complexity of it, but the energy behind it. And, uh, and then this library opened up just down the road, Hillhead Library, with a massive gramophone collection. Does and, it still exist? Uh, does the gramophone, the library does. I, I must pop in and see if they, if they still have a record collection. Um, and that was just my education because, you know, it was free. I could try stuff out. I could experiment. I could take something home, and if I didn't like it, I hadn't spent whatever it was, six quid on and it. And there was music know. in schools, and there were trips yeah. to concerts. And, and it's, it's also it's about discovery. sort of uh, attitudes from politicians. I mean, uh, because in Russia, the, the commitment to art, to ballet, to music, to op- huge. literature, poetry, yeah. is huge. It's in their blood. And uh, I... Um, wrote a libretto for an opera that was commissioned originally by a comish opera in Berlin. And I remember going to see their opening night, and it was it was, it was another ligatory, it was ligatory opera. So quite an avant-garde, um, modernist piece. The mayor of Berlin was there mm. for the opening night. Of course he was. It's the mayor of Berlin. But of course, 
we wouldn't get a politician wanting to be seen at an of opera. Course. It's far too popular. Well, again, you know, wouldn't it get goes both. back to that shame thing, that it's sense that, of apology. You know, it's fine, I'll go to a football match. I might talk about a movie I went to see. Mm-hmm. Or I, I'll sneak into the theatre, but I definitely can't be photographed at an opera or a classical concert. Except, of course, for Justin Trudeau, who's been ah, very uh, open go. in his love. of uh, And Emmanuel Macron, maybe the tide is turning. Uh, but I who do we have? Michael Gove. I mean, <laughs> but really, he'll, he'll sneak off to the opera yeah. and pretend to all of his friends he likes it, but when it came, when he had the opportunity to, to do something about it, wouldn't do it. It's, it's the most hypocritical thing. I mean, we could talk about this for hours. It makes me stabby with rage. There's a, a wonderful line in your book, James, that you say music is the one trustworthy thing that there is, and we're taking it away from an entire generation of children. Yeah. Armando, you have been very open in the book about the fact that uh, for years you've basically been a listener. Yes. That you can't just sit at the piano and do that. No, you won't see that happen. That, that won't happen. Um, <laughs> then when you were 40, your wife bought you a piano for your birthday. Yes. And there's a hilarious vignette of you sitting in someone's kitchen about a year later, sitting on a very low blue plastic chair, clutching your sheet music amongst a load of seven-year-olds because you yeah. were, as I alluded to in the introduction, about to take your grade one piano. Yes. I, Why at 40 did you think it was time? Well, I, I mean, it was a present. I didn't... No, I, I worked to deadlines. I always have done. That's how I, you know, I write pieces to a deadline. Um, you know, when you're doing a TV show, there's a sort of a weekly kind of... T- that's just how I function. I thought the only way I'm going to make myself learn... Is, is by giving myself something to work towards. So I applied for grade one. I signed up with a, a, a music, te- a piano teacher. Um, I mean, you do realise that when you're a bit more grown up, you, 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 you're a bit more in control. So it does take a bit of the pressure off because every time I went to see my uh, piano teacher and she'd say, did you practice this week? <laughs> I'd go, no. Yeah. And, what are you going to do about it? I'm paying for it. What are you going to do? You know, um, <laughs> you're going to keep me in after school. You know. So I, I did this, and, I, and I, I made myself go for grade one, and I didn't realise that a lot of these exams are held in people's houses, and there I was sitting in a tiny little, like a praying mantis next to, next to all the... And, you know, a magnificent piece of Chopin was being played next door, and out walks a five-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> I, and, and that's what I did. And, and what I hadn't realised was that um, um, what I'd been practising on was, this, was a digital keyboard mm. with the soft keys. And then I'd go in and, and it's something like that. And it's like I'd picked up a trombone. Or it was like a completely different mm. instrument because just the, the touch was much heavier yeah. and I hadn't practised that. There was a little tiny plastic keyboard in the kitchen, like one of these little kind of electronic things that, primary school teachers mm. play the wheels on the bus on that you were meant to kind of warm up on but you know so I hadn't really and I just started laughing during it because I just thought this is ridiculous because you know I've I've won a BAFTA I've <laughs> you know I've done I've done live television yeah. it was fine I've been banned in Russia but this is I've been banned in Russia you know and I just uh, and the only thought that kept me going was I once I think when I was about 30, I joined an improvers swimming course because I could never really... I missed that lesson at school where they taught you how to dive in and do the crawl and stuff. So I thought I'd go to that. And, and it was good, but it was full of um, middle-aged men, mostly, who were used to being able to order people around, mm. now kind of mostly naked in a pool, being <laughs> told what to do by an 18-year-old with a whistle. And the ones that 
were bad at it couldn't cope with being bad. And mm. there was one guy during the crawl, there was one guy who just shouted, aerodynamically, this just isn't possible. <laughs> and, and, and the 18-year-old said, well, people have been doing it for thousands of years. <laughs> and he just refused, and he got up, and he left, mm. and he never came back. So as I was doing this, I was thinking I mustn't be like that. You were going, aerodynamically, this isn't possible. This, we must get through this, and I passed by one. Yeah. Uh, I think A round of applause. Please. But I've kind of forgotten it now because I've fallen out of habits, so which is why I'm going to take up the... Um, well, I was going to say... Learn, learn the piano challenge, yeah. Well, James, you've dedicated a whole book to the idea that actually anyone can play. There, yeah. Armando's a good example of this. Yeah. Uh, beautiful book, How to Play the Piano. Thank you. does what it says on the tin. Stroke of marketing genius. <laughs> Stroke of marketing... <laughs> My book about guitar poetry. Um, no, the it's idea got, is... It's got Bach at its heart, and why Bach? Why Bach? <laughs> For um, the idea that anyone can play. Well, there are two approaches to learning an instrument. There's the thing that sends shivers down our spine of being a kid and having to do scales. And, and I can't tell you how many people come up to me after concerts and say, that, that was awful. No, they, they push their <laughs> kids up to me and they say, you've got to tell Charlie he's got to practice his scales. And I go, no, you practice your fucking scales. Why? I mean, that, that, that it's not necessary. All, so you can go down that route, scales and arpeggios, playing pieces that you really don't like because your teacher's forcing, and exams and the pressure of that. Or... What if you just want to play one piece of music, a really beautiful, simple piece of music, in this case a prelude by Bach, written 300 years ago, that still today you play and people just go, ah, oh, that's amazing. And it's not particularly hard. It's a question of logic and physics. And so I wrote a book, I figured six weeks, 40 minutes a day, you have Sundays off. It teaches you how to read music, teaches you which fingers to use, how to use the pedal. You do two bars a day, six weeks later, you're playing a piece of Bach, and it's absolutely true. I get sent videos from people on Twitter who maybe they used to play when they were a kid and they didn't play for 30 years and they started again because they regretted it. Or they've never played, and they buy a 30-quid keyboard off Amazon, and now they're playing a piece of Bach. Because, because, why Bach? Because when you get home, after a hard day at the office, you can watch Love Island <laughs> eating chicken from a bucket. I mean, what the fuck? <laughs> or you can find 40 minutes with a little keyboard, maybe with your kid or your girlfriend or your boyfriend, and do something that is extraordinary, I think. Do you want to hear it? The little... I want to hear it. How funny it. would it be if I it? screw this up? How <laughs> can you imagine it? Uh, but it's, it's, two, it's, on, it's two minutes long. Um, so listen to this piece and bear in mind it's, it's eminently doable for every single person um, in this hall tonight.
the really important point about that is that we're so used to doing everything with an app, and you know, if a web page doesn't load in half a second, we move on to something else. The idea of just having a book and spending 40 minutes, and you literally you need two hands and a keyboard, and, and anyone could do that in six weeks. But without changing your note, what I noticed there is that's you showed how romantic and passionate Bach is, because people have this image of Bach as being rigid and cool and mathematical. But that's the other point. That's you the really logic and physics. But this that's is a really cool soul, point. isn't it? But that's that passion. piece, there are so many different ways to play this piece. And again, you can play it super cold, like. Um, go the other extreme and play it super romantic. Like there's a girl you like and you want to really and that you can you can you can do it without pedal. You can use a lot of pedal. There's so many different ways of doing it and that there's no wrong way. Like yeah. no one can say to you that's the wrong way to do it. And that's another reason I chose Bach, because Bach never gave tempo indications or dynamic indications. Sometimes he didn't even say what bloody instrument it should be played on. So really, yeah. you can play it how you want. What a lovely thing. Yeah, to have that freedom, because uh, you know, it's ironic that he, perhaps above all other composers, is policed by the and classical so music. Romantic. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh my God, this guy, right? <laughs> he was like a Baroque Mick Jagger. He had 20 children. <laughs> like, really... <laughs> Like, shagged his way around. All... But, but, but 11 of them died in infancy or childbirth. When he was four, like, half of his siblings had died. At nine, his mum died. At ten, his father dies. He's shipped off to live with an elder brother. He's beaten so badly at school. He's absent for more than half of his school days because of the abuse going on there. As a teenager, he walks hundreds, walks, walks hundreds of kilometres to go to school to study music as a teenager, and he marries the love of his life, she dies, half their kids die, and you say, oh no, Bach isn't romantic, he's very kind of just rhythmical and mathematical. It's I'm sorry, it had to come out somewhere. Yeah, he spent some time in prison as well, didn't he? Yeah, because he wouldn't compose what the court wanted him to, and he was duelling, he was arrested for shagging groupies in the organ loft, I mean, the guy was, really, <laughs> he, was, he was a player. If there had been uh, anti-social behaviour orders, certain mm -hmm. yes. in 80, he would have definitely got one. He's Please. often held up, <laughs> as, as you say, I mean, you mentioned logic, you mentioned physics, as this supremely mathematical composer because yeah. the complexity of Bach's fugues, the complexity of lots of his music is, is there. There is it's, a lot of mass in it. He was obsessed with numbers. He added numbers. up his name, the, the initials, the letters in his name corresponding to the code in the alphabet. A is 1, B is 2. And if you add them all up, you get 41. 4 and 1, you reverse it, you get 40. And I mean, I told you, we're, we're mental music. And he, he would use these little ciphers. There would be, you know, 41 bars in a piece or after six bars. He wrote six of everything. Six English suites, six partitas, six French suites, six Brandenburg concertos, six cello suites. He was obsessed with numbers. And yet, at the same time, the depth of feeling, the heroism, the, the grief, the despair, the happiness, everything, it all goes into it. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. 
I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. Well, I want to bring us to uh, Mozart, because where you do agree that Bach is the greatest, you rather diverge on the subject of Mozart. And Intelligence Squares, of course, is uh, famous for its wonderful debates. I'm not sure we can get a debate going here, but Armando, I just want to quote you, if I may. Oh, God. <laughs> I've never been able to sit through a production of The Magic Flute without thinking it's the silliest, messiest story I've ever seen. I've gone off in a huff and put some Wagner on instead. James, meanwhile, you describe listening obsessively to a certain pair of Mozart operas. You say these two are by Mozart, which helps. The biggest deterrent to opera for me is Wagner. Discuss. Uh, no, quite, quite seriously, though, uh, Mozart. Armandi, you make a very serious point with, uh, in a playful way, of course, by pointing out that actually you really struggle to get to a point where you yes, did appreciate I, Mozart. I'm still, I'm, I'm, I like Mozart. I'm warming to him. I still think I need a bit more encouragement, a bit of help. But I'm, I'm, especially later Mozart, and it's difficult to say later when he died at whatever, 34, 35. But the, the music he was writing uh, near the end of his, his life. Um, what I think for me was, as I was starting out and listening, and it may just be that kind of reaction to what you're told, everyone was telling me, oh, Mozart, ah, oh, ah. Oh. And, and I remember listening to, on Radio 3, the Bernard Levin doing a talk, an interval talk, where he actually prays to the god Mozart, quite seriously. And, and I, I sort of, I think maybe I just react against it because I didn't get it. It seemed to me like a kind of, the, the Mozart I heard seemed like, you know, variations on Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. It felt mm. too sugary and too nice, you know. Um, that's how I felt. Now, subsequently, I've come across one of the most amazing opera productions I ever went to was The Magic Flute, done by, in conjunction with the Yeno and Theatre de Complicité. Uh, I've also walked out of Wagner Opera for just being terrible to watch. It was all set in a Barrett home, and the whole thing rests on you believing that the gods are the gods. But if you put them in a Barrett home, you've kind of yeah. negated the next well, 16 hours. Barrett you know, homes, no. James. Yes. You write so convincingly and compellingly about a particular interpretation of these Mozart operas. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I wanted to talk to you a bit about the importance of the interpreter. Tell us about your, your young Greek god, Theodor Kerensis, and why it makes such a difference to hear him conduct Mozart operas. Yeah, there is a guy at the moment on the scene, he, for my money, the, the, the greatest living conductor. And I don't say that lightly. I mean, he... He's only released a small number of albums, but amongst those are three of the Mozart operas, and they are the only recordings I've ever heard of any composer by any performer where you just know when you're listening to it, this is what Mozart heard in his head while he was writing it down. I don't know where to start with Mozart. I mean, I'm not religious at all, but there, he is proof of God. You, say, you can say, look, study Shakespeare, and he'll show us who we are. But if you study Mozart, he'll show us who we could be, potentially, if some 
unbelievable miracle happen. That his second piano concerto, his second piano concerto, he was 11, has a slow movement that it, it, it just shreds your heart. I mean, I can't tell you. So yeah, on the one hand, maybe it gets better. On the other hand, it's already there. Like, a lot of you will know the story that when he was a very young teenager, 13, 14, his dad took him to a church and he heard a choir singing. And they were singing uh, Miserere by a composer called Allegri. And in that day, sacred music, music in church, it was illegal to take the score out of the church. It was illegal even to look at the score. And Mozart, he'd heard this and he said to his dad, you know, fuck, Dad, what, what, what is this music? Where can I get it? And his dad said, I'm sorry, you know, it's, you can't. So the guy, the kid goes home, 14, locks himself up in his attic, writes down the entire thing from memory, the organ part, the vocal part, everything, and says to his dad, you know, I really wanted to know that score, so I, I wrote it down so I can study it. 41 symphonies, 27 piano concertos, dozens of operas, 26 string quartet. I, I mean... There are no words to describe it. And then when you hear someone like Theodore Carensis bring it to life, those are literally Don Giovanni, Marriage of Figaro, and Cosi Fantuti. Those recordings of Carensis that he's made are the only recordings I listen to now on a regular basis. I, I don't need 10 desert Of artists. any genre? Or just of any genre, genre, full stuff. Mm-hmm. Everything you need to know about the world is in there. Yeah. And actually, I don't necessarily agree about the distinction between classical being richer than other forms. I was obsessed with Wham when I was a kid, I'm sorry. <laughs> and I was obsessed with Queen. And I, I, to me, it's the same thing. Same it, thing. it releases the same kind of chemicals. And yes, classical music, perhaps it, it's longer, it's more complex. A lot of the time it doesn't have words, so you can provide your own story. And I think all of that makes it a slightly different experience. But... You know, it's the same 12 tones. There's a fabulously satirical uh, chapter in your book about a night at the opera, uh, which also includes a portrait of the sort of classical, tyrannical opera maestro. Uh, How much do you think classical music is compromised by or even ruined, perhaps, in the eyes of potential audiences by those stereotypes, by those tropes. I mean, they, they're grounded in truth, unfortunately. Well, yeah, I mean, it's what we were saying at the start, isn't it? It's, um, it's, I mean, you want... I think the reason that that recording says so much is that there's someone who is, is starting afresh with the score and, and going, OK, as you say, what's it like to almost to recreate that impression of having heard this music for the, for the very time. first time. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's what everyone has to do. Every player has to do it, every orchestra, every interpreter has to do it. But what you get, I think, in some of these institutions is, no, you've got to know exactly what you're going to get in, in advance. Mm. And you've got to have Champagne a, a and at the of it. The performers, you go to a piano recital, the guy walks on, ridiculous outfit, and he scowls at you. And he sits down and he plays... And then he scowls, and then he goes home. And you think, well, okay. I mean, I mean, of course, I'll always go to that because it's Kissin or Sokolov. Isn't it? I love these guys. They're my heroes. But what I would give to hear one of them just spend three minutes saying, I'm going to play you this piece by Beethoven. Mm. And when he composed it, he just got a new piano. And it's like a kid getting a new iPhone. The, the enthusiasm you can hear from the opening chords 
It had more sound, it had a different pedal, it had more notes, and just to hear why he's playing it, that, to me, it, it makes all the difference. That's why you're and, such a gem, James Rhodes, <laughs> and we're going to get you to uh, tell us about your next piece, which is based on opera, originally, comes from uh, Orfeo e Eurydice. By... Look, this is the ultimate love song for me. So this opera, Orfeo e Eurydice, um, you, most of you will know the story where Orfeo, the love of his life, she dies, and, and the Greek, they take her down to hell, Eurydice. And he goes, come on, God, please. You know, she's so young, I love her so much. Let me go down and rescue her. <laughs> and they say, okay, but if you find her, you can bring her back to, to real life, but you can't turn and look at her while you're leading her back. I mean, because they were dicks, the gods. They just like playing these little games. And so he, they say, if you turn and look at her, she'll die instantly. So he goes down to the underworld, and he finds her. And he's leading her back. And, of course, she's getting more and more upset. She's thinking, why isn't he looking at me? Have I, have I got fat? He's, he's, it's like kind of, you know, if, if they were millennials, she'd be saying, come on, let's take a selfie with our selfie stick for, for Instagram. And anyway, he ends up, he, tells, he turns and looks at her, and she's killed instantly. Um, to be fair, anyone using a selfie stick should be killed instantly, I think. But... <laughs> But it ends up okay in the end. They bring her back to life because they realize love is important. And anyway, this piece of music is what accompanies him as he goes down to find her at the start of his journey. He doesn't know if he'll find her. He doesn't know if he'll survive. He doesn't know if he'll live or die. And so ostensibly, it's quite a dark piece. And yet, this is the magic trick with classical music that I don't get from other forms. Underneath the sadness, there is so much love and joy and surrender and hope and, and positivity that it's like a, it's sad, but it's flavored with so much more depth than that. Um, so this is an arrangement by an Italian um, composer called Giovanni Scambatti, if, if people care about things like that. <laughs>
Your book is incredibly open about the hell of being on tour and of the particular nerves and horrors for you of performance day. And I imagine that a piece like that, which so exemplifies beauty, so exemplifies stillness, mm. is a great ally when it yes. comes to your sort of mental and spiritual health. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about how music gets you through life, because you, you credit it with your life, literally. Yeah, and maybe that sounds a bit melodramatic, but I don't think I'm... I'm I think I'm far from unique in that. Like, life without music would be inconceivable to all of us. And, and also, when you say the hell of touring, I should be abundantly clear, you know, it's really not an important job that I have. It's really a lot of fun, and it's what I've wanted to do since I was... I'm, I'm one of the lucky ones. I'm like one of those kids who is obsessed with football and finds himself playing alongside Messi and Ronaldo and wakes up and goes, how did this happen? And that does bring with it certain pressures and responsibilities too, though. It does, yeah. Um, but I think the truth is every... I think it's, it depends how you're wired. I, you won't believe me, but it's the absolute truth. I feel, I feel the same anxiety about playing in front of 2,500 people at a sold-out concert from memory, 100,000 notes, as I did when I used to work in Burger King when I was a teenager. <laughs> I promise you. Oh, my favorite Beethoven concert story. This is a bit geeky, but it's really fun. Um, no pressure. His first, <laughs> shut up, his first piano concerto. Um, his first piano concerto is in C major, very beautiful, lovely, happy piece. And at the premiere, he was doing the solo part and conducting, and the copyist was writing it out, and it was so to the wire. They didn't have time to rehearse or anything. They get there, they're handing out the, for the orchestra the, the sheet music, and the ink's still wet. And they're about to start, and they realize that the piano is at half a tone out of tune with the rest of the orchestra. And so what he does, Beethoven, as he goes along, instead of playing his own first piano concerto in C major, he plays it in C sharp major, on the fly. Can you... I mean, any musicians here would just go, holy shit. I mean, <laughs> insane... I love that. It's Beethoven. For me, he is the best. He's the best. He's okay. greater than Bach. He's greater than, he's greater than all of them. That leads us rather beautifully to our final piece before I... we open it out to the audience. Uh, and you're going to tell us about a particular sonata by Beethoven. Yeah, it's not really a piece. I'm not going to play it because it's long. It's like 22 minutes long. But I wanted to give you an idea. I have recorded it, actually. I'm signing CDs afterwards, my CDs. <laughs> so um, you can... Is it on this one? I can't remember. Yes, it is on this one. So you've got... Um, it's his 31st piano sonata. <laughs> like, what have you done today, right? <laughs> he wrote 32 sonatas. Holy shit. Um, but I'm going to give you a couple of examples from this piece. I, just when you think... Of, it's hard to put into words. I, the opening, it's so condensed that the first three bars... Here we are. first three bars, and within those three bars is almost all the thematic material from the first movement, parts of the second movement, and almost all the thematic material of the last movement, condensed. And it's the last movement that I want to talk about. I'm going to... There are moments with, with this piece where time just stands still. Like, there's no movement at all. And there's, like, at the opening, I'm going to play you the opening as he wrote it. And you'll hear, after about 40 seconds, there's an A a single note, and he repeats it like 28 times. At this point in his life, he's completely deaf. 
he's sick. This is the only piece he writes in 1820. He knows he's, go- he's sick with the illness that's going to end up killing him. And he's desperately alone. And he goes inside. And, and this is like, it's like reading his diary. This, this is what he writes. This is the last movement, just the opening of it. That's the introduction, and then he writes what he calls his song of lamentation, which is like the proper theme. And just listen to the listen to the, the grief in this. on in that vein but then the magic happens you think it can't get any sadder and it has to end and then he writes a fugue which I'll show you this is important how he ends this movement So we think it's going to get happier now. And actually it does. If the fugue progresses, this is kind of a standard and you think this is going to be the end of the whole sonata. And then he pulls this unbelievable kind of plot twist. The whole thing gets really kind of loud and rambunctious and you think it's the end, but it isn't. So listen to what he does. Uh...
goes back to the original sad theme, the ornamented, and he writes at the top, exhausted, like he's got <laughs> nothing left in him. And you hear in the music, you hear him gasping for breath, like he can barely breathe. Listen to this. thing just it's like it's the most intimate he gets so then here's my favorite bit and then I'm going to finish and we'll talk about something else but do you remember how we ended last time okay listen to what he does now I'm going to play it exactly as written I promise you I'm not changing anything Now, we recognize that fugue. Firstly, those chords. It's like Jesus dying on the cross in his mind. And then he writes, little by little, gaining new life, coming back to life. We think we know it. But we're not quite sure where. And all he's done is he's turned upside down the original fugue. And then he spends the rest of the movement turning it back the right way round until it ends in this blaze of glory. It's incredible. Even the ending from, from being so desperately sad. It's like, um... It's all about his redemption. And just finally, just to finish, because this is a little touch that makes me so happy, even if no one else here really gets it. The end of the first movement, right? This is way before that fugue that we talked about. The very end of the movement. Listen to this. You don't think you notice anything about that, but I'm going to put three grams more weight on my thumb when I play it and listen to what happens. So right from the start, we have... So you can study a piece like this for 
for 20 years. And in every bar, there is so much to learn and to discover, and which is why you need a teacher and not one who's going to force you to do scales, but one who's going to really enjoy kind of digging into stuff like that. Which is why we all need James Rhodes. Ladies and gentlemen. We've got about 15 minutes for your questions for Armando and James. I'm going to take this gentleman's question and then hopefully there's someone in the gallery. Thank you. Hi, this is a question for James. Uh, thank you for picking such um, a great selection. I've got very similar tastes in both music, music and um, pianists. But, uh, I, and I'm very evangelical like you are about music. But I'm having this challenge um, communicating to non-classical music lovers I wonder if you can help me with I, I find increasingly that if I play something to a friend like um, Rachmaninoff B minor prelude that things in a minor key and you chose almost all minor key things tonight um, are increasingly getting a response as depressing and yet mm. I find minor key music very uplifting and I can see that you do too but increasingly I, I find that kind of the young audience interpret a minor key performance as a depressing and down beat and a uh, melancholic thing and then they're not getting joy from the sadness that I think uh, audiences yeah. used to and I don't understand why I wonder how you would communicate that um, through words that's a great question it's interesting isn't it we tend to associate major key with happy and minor key with sad and yet there are so many different flavors of sad and I mean god although anyone would find that right man enough probably like suicidally depressing that'd be my I mean god it just it makes me want to throw myself out a window. And, um, I'm not really sure how to answer that, except to say, look at bigger pieces. Instead of that prelude, play them the second piano concerto, for example, which has just the most bombastic ending, which I, you know, you'd have to have a heart of stone not to get you know, even a semi-heart on when you're listening to it. But, but also, it also has a slow movement that's incredibly intense and, and brooding and mysterious and... And also, why, what's this aversion we have somehow to, to sadness? Like, what's wrong with being sad? We have this idea, it's, it, we've kind of caught that awful American thing of the pursuit of happiness, like it's the most important thing and it comes from a new iPhone or a new Tinder date or whatever the fuck it is. It, what's wrong with just feeling a little bit sad? Like, it's, that's absolutely, it's normal. It's totally normal. And that's the truth is, one more thing before you start. And the... the <laughs> that was sad. It's so rude. Um, I'm sorry. I know. No, the, I, I would say to them that when you listen to music, it tends to turn the volume up on whatever it is you are feeling as a listener. I, in my experience, music does not make you feel a certain way because of the music itself, but it, 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 it grows whatever it is you're feeling. So I would say maybe the people who say that, um, maybe they're just all really depressed. <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, no, no. Talk to happier people. I wasn't going to say, but I was just going to say that, I mean, isn't, uh, isn't teenage angst and uh, emotion, isn't that a very kind of typical teenage, you know, I, 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 I think people, some of the music I listened to when I started out listening to classical music was, was the sad music, was the very slow, extraordinary end of Mahler's Ninth Symphony, which is like 15 minutes of extremely sad music that then disappears, and the last minute of it is... is 
is, is a kind of musical version of silence, really. It just, it just disintegrates. But it's very sad. But I, I'm teenagers drawn to that as well as to kind of joyful, yeah. energetic, well, oysters. Teenagers to substitute humans, I think. You know, there is something... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Question in the gallery. Oh, can I sit down? Yeah. <laughs> My name's Frances. Um, I really loved your talks, all three of you. It was very, very interesting. Um, I am not a musician at all, and so absolutely brilliant to hear you guys talk and to play. Um... I have a question for Armando, and just interested in kind of sort of the topic is the transformation, transformative power of music, and how music has transformed your writing, or if it's transformed your writing and your work in television and film. Oh, right, yes. Well, it sort of, it sort of has, without it being very specific about it, but I, I mean, I always work with music on it, and, and I always um, have a sense of, I think what I've gained from music is a sense of structure. Uh, um, you know, I um, there's something very there's something very musical about comedy. In the, and if you if you get if you get geeky comedy writers together, they'll talk about how it's important. You ha- you can have arguments that can go on for an hour about where the funny word should come in the sentence. There's something if you move it from that point to maybe the end or the beginning, it, the joke is ruined. There's something about the timing, the rhythm of of a funny line, uh, uh, and open it up. There's something about the timing or structure or rhythm of a funny plot that has to have a satisfying rhythm and it has to build up. It has to, just when you've forgotten something that was referred to earlier, suddenly it comes as you open the door. There it is. And it's just, and I, and I for me, it helps to think of it in terms of music. And, and I did one episode of um, The Thick of It, which um, I think it was The Thick of It, yeah, where, where I just thought, actually, this episode, we're going to write as a fugue. We're going to, we're going to do this, and then it's going to happen a bit again later. Well, they've moved on, and then the same thing's going to happen again for the third time. Well, they, you know, and that sort of, no. Now, you're not meant to know that, but just that's, that's how it, it affects me. And, um, Which episode is it? I'm totally I'm trying, uh, I think it was the phone-in. It was the phone-in. Okay. Uh, Radio 5 Live phone-in. Brilliant. Another question over here. Thank you. Yeah. Hi. Okay, hi. Um, so, well, this is embarrassing now. I only thought I would say this because I've driven three hours here and I don't know a single person in this room. Um, you are among friends. <laughs> yes. Um, so uh, last year I was not very well and spent some time in a psychiatric hospital um, where listening to music was actually really hard to do. And as a musician, a professional musician and music teacher, I play three instruments, music has always been my life. And for a while the idea of even listening to music, let alone playing anything, was just impossible. I just wondered if you've ever experienced... Sometimes there are really great things that you discover about listening and playing music when you're not well. Has it ever really been a... Has it had, like, a negative impact on you? What a lovely question to Amazing end question. With. Thank you for your honesty. What a brave question. Cool. Thank you. Um, also... Uh, I'm a fellow psych ward as well. I, I, wish, I wish they did loyalty cards, you know, where you could <laughs> stump them. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I, to answer your question, yes, and that's the scariest thing of all, when what you've loved and believed in all of your life suddenly threatens to turn on you and you think, oh, what if I can't do this anymore? We're actually... I mean, in a way, with hindsight, it's not a bad thing because how many people have something they care so deeply about and so passionately about that it has that amount of power over you? It's actually it's a good thing for me now looking back that there were moments where I thought, I just can't do it. It's, it's too painful to listen to it. And I, 
I guess it goes back to what I said earlier about turning. It, it, listening to music turns the volume up on, on what you're feeling. And so, of course, if you're prone to depression or if you're feeling depressed or you're feeling um, in very low mood or you have suicidal ideation, I mean, you listen to certain pieces of music and, and inevitably it's, it's dangerous. In, in fact, in two of the psychiatric wards I was in, music wasn't allowed. Um, weirdly, you could watch Jeremy Kyle. Um, <laughs> um, but, and I, but I think there's a reason for that because I think it does... It, it, it does, it, there's nothing scarier when you're mentally ill than a feeling. It's my experience. Whether it's a good feeling or a sad feeling, it doesn't matter. And listening to music elicits feelings. And so to answer your question, yes, I have felt like that. Um, but it always passes. And the love always outweighs the, the fear for me. I don't know if you have similar... Yeah, well, I mean, music is... is uh, I mean, I'm... I'm different in that music isn't my career and music isn't my, uh, you know, my, my first and last thought in the day. And, and the, um, uh, uh, but when you have those, you know, when you have those weird discussions in your head, which sense would I be happy to lose and mm. not lose? I mean, I think I'd rather be blind than deaf, mm. I think. Um, because mm. it just... The, the, the connection I... The, this, the sense that... The, again, when you were playing the, the Behorn, I was thinking how it, it's, it's a sort of, it feels like someone's talking to you, but I don't quite know what the words are, but I can understand the meaning. Yeah, and, and that is, is sort of special and indescribable. Thank you so much to Armando Yunucci, James Rose, to everyone at Intelligence Squared, and to all of you for being a fantastic audience. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 